0: You may be seated. We can turn with in your Bibles to the book of First John, chapter five. First John, chapter five. We're going to look at verses nine through twelve this morning, but I will, I will read verses six through thirteen to set the context. Receiving God's testimony, we'll begin reading at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. There are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the testimony of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. He who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Amen. Well, let us pray. God, we are thankful that you bear witness concerning who the Son is, concerning who Jesus Christ is. We are thankful for the witness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are thankful for the witness of the Spirit in our hearts. We are thankful for the witness of Christ by water and the blood. And we are thankful for the witness in our own lives and hearts as well that you have saved wretched people like us and we are thankful for this blessed gospel this blessed reality of life in christ jesus saying that jesus lived died and rose again that in him we might have eternal life for he is eternal life thank that he is the true god and he is eternal life and that we have life with you we know that our daily life our natural life is derived from you And we also know that our eternal life is given by you. And so help us to recognize that. Help us to see that there is only one way of salvation, one way to have life, and that is in Christ Jesus. May this give us comfort. May this give us assurance. For often we can be forgetful. For often we can be weighed down by our remaining problems and sins. But help us to look to Christ. For every one look to self, may we take 10 looks to Christ. For he is the author and perfecter of our faith. And we're thankful for what he is doing even now. And so we ask and pray that you'd send forth your spirit to give us illumination from on high to better understand what your word says. We pray that you would encourage, we pray that you would convict, we pray that you would save, and we're thankful that you are mighty to do so, that your word does go forth and is glorified, it does not return void. And so we pray that you would speak to us, we pray, O Christ, that we would hear of you today in your word, and that you would uplift and nourish your people as we consider what it means to believe in Christ Jesus. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I've made this observation. Perhaps you've noticed this as well. There are problems that, we can, uh, that arise when we get our news off of Twitter. We just read headlines, we just read the, the catchy words, but we don't always stop to consider the argumentation. We don't always stop to consider the, the substance behind of what is being claimed in those uh, headlines. We read the headline without reading the article and its argument, and this is cultivated in our society by the fact that we often make sweeping accusations. We make sweeping generaliza- generalizations. You and I do that all the time, we have a claim but then we do not usually back that up with proper argumentation or proper evidence or proper witnesses. But that's not what God does, does he? That's not what God is doing when it comes to the gospel and what Christ has done. God testifies to who Jesus is and he testifies in so many different ways, myriads of ways. So the problem isn't so much the witness because God gives us that witness, the problem is when we reject that witness. The problem is when we see the claim, we see the evidences and we reject what is said concerning who Jesus Christ is. That's a problem for those that are not in Christ. Here is Jesus, believe upon him. If you do not, if you reject that, that there are going to be major issues. But if you receive that, if you believe upon Christ, if you look to him by faith, there is an assurance that God's word provides. There is an assurance that this testimony gives to us, and that is the testimony that we have eternal life. Those who've been given the gift of faith, they really truly do have life in the son, and they truly do have life abundantly. Now, remember, the book of 1 John is all about assurance. It's a book of assurance to encourage the brethren at Ephesus. There are these heretics who came in. There are these ones who threatened their assurance. And it really was based upon what is said concerning Jesus. These heretics said, Jesus is not the Christ. And these heretics said that Jesus is not the Son of God. And so John wants to encourage, wants to remind them, here are these assurances that you can have that you know that you have eternal life, that you know that you have the Son of God. And so we're really coming to the end of this book. The main thesis is in in chapter 5, verse 13. But we're in this section about witness. Last time we saw the witnesses, the witnesses from heaven, the witnesses on earth, the witness of the Holy Spirit. And then now in verses 9 through 12, we deal with what it means to receive that witness. Here's what God has said concerning Jesus. Will you believe it? Here's what God has said concerning his son, here's what it means to receive that very testimony. And then verses 13 and following, he applies it specifically to the church at Ephesus. Verses nine through 12 is more of a general application to those who receive that witness. Because the problem is very clear. The problem is rejecting the witness. If you reject who Jesus is, if you reject that witness, if you reject that testimony and all the evidences that are there, You WILL HAVE NO LIFE. IN REALITY, YOU ARE DEAD. IN REALITY, YOU ARE UNDER THE WRATH OF GOD. THAT'S A PROBLEM WITH THESE HERETICS. THESE MEN CLAIM TO LOVE GOD. THESE MEN CLAIM TO HAVE THE HOLY SPIRIT. THESE MEN CLAIM TO BE PART OF THE PEOPLE OF GOD. BUT THE PROBLEM IS THEY DID NOT RECEIVE THE TESTIMONY CONCERNING JESUS CHRIST. They deny that he is the Christ and they deny that he is the son of God. And if you deny those very things, you do not love God and you do not have the Holy Spirit. They do not have the life they claim to have because they do not have he who is eternal life. But for those that have believed on Christ, the encouragement is we have eternal life and we have that eternal life now. We don't see it, but we believe it, and we experience it even now, even though we do not see it. And so in verses 9 through 12 of 1 John 5, John is affirming the importance of receiving God's testimony by faith because that is where life is. It's not by works. It is by faith. Here is a truth concerning jesus do you believe it to be true do you believe he is eternal life do you believe this is where eternal life is found and john is giving that assurance and highlights the importance of receiving the testimony that god gives so we'll look at this receiving god's testimony under two headings this morning first of all we'll see the testimony of god's son verses 9 and 10 and then secondly we'll see the testimony of eternal life in verses 11 and 12. So the testimony of God's Son, verses 9 and 10, and then the testimony of eternal life in verses 11 and 12. So let's first look at verses 9 and 10, which is the testimony of God's Son. And notice we see he's comparing in verse 9 the witness of God versus the witness of man. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's not a negative statement concerning the witness of men. In this fallen world, in this present age, even in court cases, we rely upon the witness of men. And even too, there are men who are not set apart as apostles, who in many ways throughout the scriptures do bear witness to who Jesus is. John Gill says, and even in this case concerning the Son of God, his coming into the world, the dignity of his person, the testimony of men is credited. As that of the wise men, who declared that the king of the Jews was born, and a star had been seen in the east, which Herod himself gave credit to, and upon it summoned the chief priests and inquired of them where he should be born. And also of the shepherds, who testified to the appearance of angels, who told them that there was then born a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and who also related that they themselves saw the infant at Bethlehem. And especially of John the Baptist, whose testimony was true and could not be objected to by the Jews themselves who sent to him before whom he bore a plain and faithful witness so men have borne witness to who Christ is men have said shepherds have said people didn't uh, shepherds were typically not the men you would go to that with respect to important information so here come these men here come these unlikely witnesses To Christ who has come. Even the wise men from afar, these unlikely witnesses to Christ who has come. So the witnesses of men are not necessarily bad here, but the uh, witness of God is far better. And if we receive then the witness of men, we need to add something. It's an open sort of sentence. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Therefore, we receive the witness of God. If God has testified to who he is, if God has recognized who the son is, if the son testifies to who he is, shouldn't we receive that all the more? That was the point of verses 6 through 8, and I dealt with some of the text critical issues that are there, but I do believe verse 7, the longer portion, the longer version should be there. It is present in some of the church fathers as far as, as early as 160 uh, AD or AD 160. The father bears witness. Where does the father bear witness? at the baptism and transfiguration. The Son, the Word himself, bears witness by the things he says and the things that he does. And the Holy Spirit bears witness. The Holy Spirit bears witness in the hearts of God's people testifying to who the Son is. It is a work of God, it is a work of the triune God to testify and bear witness concerning the water and the blood, namely, Jesus Christ. And what they're testifying to is that Jesus really is the divine Son. Jesus really is the Son of God. The one who is man, like us in every way, yet without sin, who has a body, who has a soul, yet without sin, is also he who is God. That is a difficult thing for us to comprehend because we're not supposed to comprehend it. We just believe it to be true. When it is the Son, the one who, who takes on a human nature, there's no diminishing of his deity. He doesn't relinquish anything when he takes on a human nature, but he remains fully God. He remains God, father or uh, uh, equal to the father of the same substance as the father and yet one who is man. And there's no mixing of the natures, there's no enhancing of the humanity or a diminishing of the deity. There's nothing like that going on here. He really is the one who is son. The one Jesus really is the son of God. God bears witness to that very thing, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit in earth, the the water, the baptism of Christ bears witness of this, his ministry bears witness, and the blood bears witness. So if we receive the testimony of men, God's witness is far greater, and we ought to receive that as well. I mean, God has so many witnesses, doesn't he? It shows the wickedness of man, doesn't it? The depravity of man when man does not believe it, when everything is staring them right in the face. It shows us that it really is a work of God. God has to change hearts. The spirit has to move and remove that heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. God has to make his people willing in the day of his power. And if he has made you willing in the day of his power, you ought to rejoice. You ought to thank him. You ought to praise him. You ought to love him for the good thing that he has done In you, and he goes on to highlight what the testimony is for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his son. Again, I do think the baptism of Jesus is in view here. I don't like to make a big deal about some of the tenses when it comes to Greek, I think sometimes that's overdone. We like to say once for all time using the past tense. Again, I've said before, when we just talk, we don't talk that way. I'm speaking right now. I spoke to you. I yelled when this thing went loud. That did happen once for all time. That's not going to happen again, you know, because that time has passed. But I'm not communicating that that way. We just, we're just talking. But there are some tenses that we need to pay attention to. And there is one here, and it's used uh, throughout these verses. It's what's called the perfect tense. Something that's happened in the past, but has ongoing effects. And so what has happened in the past is when the Father at the uh, the anointing of Jesus at the baptism says, you are my son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son. So we have the baptism of Jesus and its ongoing effects. And what that means. God has testified. The Father has testified. And all that follows Jesus' baptism testifies and still has ongoing import for the church at Ephesus. What does that mean for us brethren it still has ongoing import for us god has borne witness to who the son is we didn't hear it we weren't there but it really did happen because god has borne witness and he also bears witness by way of his chosen men god bears witness through his apostles and brethren the apostles still have ongoing authority the office of apostle has ceased. It's no longer necessary. And one reason is because we still have their ongoing authority with respect to what we have in the scriptures. When we see what an apostle is, it's one who has seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That is crucial. Seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So if anybody says today that they're an apostle, they are wrong. Lowercase a, they want to be a messenger, whatever. I still would dispute that. But capital A, apostle, that does not exist anymore. We have their authority here for us. The two offices that apply primarily to us are local offices, pastor and deacon. Pastor elder is the same thing, pastor and deacon. And so God has testified and he testifies through apostles. What that means is we still have the authority uh, through the word. What that means is God still testifies through the scriptures. God still testifies through his inspired word. And the word of God does go forth. If you reuse the uh, reading, use the McShane calendar for your Bible reading, you would have read 2 Thessalonians 3 today. What does Paul say? Pray for us. What, is he, what, he, what does he want the Thessalonians to pray for? That the word of God would be glorified. That the word of God would run swiftly and be glorified just as it has in you. The point is, God does something through the word. As the word goes forth, as we read the word, as we sing the word, God is speaking to us. God is strengthening us. God is nourishing us as we hear it and as we read it. And it's through men whom God used to bring about his word it wasn't dictation, especially when it comes to letters. God worked through men, inspired them using their personalities. We see that in John and Paul, but God used that. The Spirit guided them with respect to all things pertaining to the truth. And so we still have that witness. John is still bearing witness to, to that with what we see in verse 9. For this is the witness of God, the baptism and its ongoing import, which he has testified of his son, he who is God. So God bears witness. His witness is greater than man's. And then verse 10, notice we believe in this witness. What do we do with this witness? What do we do with the thing that has been spoken? Notice he describes and distinguishes between those who believe and those who don't believe. Belief versus unbelief. And notice what it all centers around the thing we've highlighted throughout 1 John, the thing that we've highlighted in this church, the thing that was important for the book of Mark and all the books of the Bible, Jesus. The Sunday school answer applies. What you say concerning Jesus Christ has eternal import, doesn't it? If you deny that he is the Christ, you deny that he is the Son of God, well, you make God out to be a liar and you do not have life. But if you believe in the name of the Son of God, you receive that witness, You have life in the son and he says as such in verse 10 with those who believe this is again that general application the specific comes in verse 13 but the general has application for us he who believes in the son of god has the witness in himself this is difficult to understand what is going on what does it mean that whoever believes in the son what does it mean that if we believe we have the witness in and of ourselves What it means is, have we believed ourselves in Christ? We've heard the witness, and has that witness then been internalized in us? Have we looked to Christ by faith? Are we then now a living witness of what God has done? You see, in a lot of ways, what he's referring to here is, I think, a personal testimony. There is the gospel, what Jesus has done, how he lived, died, and rose again— but it's not wrong to recognize what Jesus has done for me. What has Jesus done for you? Notice, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Certainly we have the abiding of the Holy Spirit, we have the abiding of the Son by the Holy Spirit, but we also are living witnesses of what Jesus has done. He takes the theology, he takes what God has done, and he applies it into the hearts and lives of all of God's people. The gospel is not our testimony, by the way. The gospel is Jesus living, dying, and rising again, but we can share our testimony with others. We can share with others what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. That's what we do in 1 Peter 3. All of God's people can do that, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Here's Jesus. He lived, died, and rose again. He is the Son of God. Here's what he did for me. Here's his dying for me. Here's the sins that I used to commit. Now I am changed. I was once lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. He who believes in the son of God has the witness in and of himself. Not many are called to preach from the pulpit. And I don't believe church time, worship time is sharing time. There's not a time to have your personal testimony, have everybody share what God is doing in their life. I usually think, when that happens, pastors just either incompetent or they really just didn't prepare that week and just really want to do something. That, that's not what it's about. When we come together, it's men set apart to preach the word of God. But if you're talking to other people and you're you know, witnessing to others in your life, it's not wrong to share your testimony. Here's what Jesus has done. Here's what he did for me. He who believes in the name of the Son of God has this witness in him self. Matthew Henry says, he hath not only the outward evidence that others have, what Jesus has done, what the Father testifies, what the Son testifies, and the Spirit testifies, but he hath in his own heart a testimony for Jesus Christ. He can allege what Christ and the truth of, uh, the truth of Christ have done for his own soul and what he has seen and found in him. A lot of ways that we have in verse 10 is a clear example of what a personal testimony is, what Jesus has done for us. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Here's Jesus. Believing is believing on something, believing on someone, looking to Christ by faith, looking and living, looking to Jesus and believing upon him that he lived, died, and rose again. And if you do, you shall be saved and have the witness in yourself but there are those who reject he who does not believe God has made him a liar he who does not believe God is a sinner stott says unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied it is a sin to be deplored unbelief cannot be forgiven can it all their sins can be forgiven unbelief cannot be forgiven because you believe on the one who forgives you of all of your sins. And if you don't believe upon the one who can forgive all of your sins, then you're going to die in your trespasses and sins. And later on, he's going to talk about the sin that leads unto death and that probably coincides with the unforgivable sin. I admit those things are very tough for us to understand, but you see very clearly in the Gospels, it's when the Pharisees attribute the works of christ to beelzebub it's unbelief what they say about christ they're not saying he's the christ they're saying he is beelzebub they're they're attributing the works of god to the works of the devil they're engaging in unbelief what they say is vital what they say is leading to their downfall and what one says concerning christ again is vital and important he who does not believe god has made him out to be a liar We've seen this throughout the book, chapter 1:10. If we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar. Chapter two, verse four. "I know him, He who says, "I know him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him." And then 4:20 we see, "If someone says, "I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar." And then here, he who does not believe God has made him a liar." We see what belief is, and we see what unbelief looks like. And the reason that these ones make God out to be a liar, these heretics who are present here, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. He's rejected it. Here's the testimony: reject receive it or reject it. And the heretics have rejected. The heretics, and what's interesting again, the perfect tense is used here. He has not believed. That is, it's happened in the past. it has ongoing import he has not believed in the son of God that is applicable to the secessionists applicable to these heretics who came up in the church they went out of the church not of the church but it's applicable to all who believe you have not believed if you have not believed in the name of the son of God you make God out to be alive you have not believed in the name of the son of God the wrath of God is upon you here's his witness Here's the testimony of God's Son, believe upon him. And if you are a believer, notice again the comfort and assurance that we've seen already, namely the witness of God in our lives. There's doctrine, but it has application. Here's Jesus, and here's what it means for us. That's why, humanly speaking, John is very vehement against the heretics, because they're threatening where one's assurance lies. They're threatening where one's assurance is, and that is in Jesus. Gill says, as he talks about the need for Christ and and the witness in himself, what it means is it highlights the need we stand uh, in of Christ, of the suitableness, the fullness and excellency of Christ, the Spirit of God enlightening him into the impurity of his nature, his impotence to do anything spiritually good his incapacity to atone for sin and the insufficiency of his righteousness to justify himself before God and convincing him that nothing but the blood of the Son of God can cleanse him from sin. And only Christ's sacrifice can expiate it and his righteousness justify him from it. Now, without him, he can do nothing, testifying also to the efficacy of his blood, the completeness of his sacrifice and satisfaction, the excellency of his righteousness, and the energy of his grace and strength. So he comes to have such a witness in himself that if 10,000 arguments were ever so artfully formed in favor of the purity of human nature, the power of man's free will, and the sufficiency of man's righteousness, and against the sacrifice and righteousness of Christ, the dignity of Christ's person as the Son of God, which gives virtue to Christ's blood, sacrifice, and righteousness, They would all signify nothing to him. He would be proof against them. God bears witness. The water, the spirit, and the blood bear witness. And we are a witness as well. We are trophies of God's grace, of what he's done in our hearts and lives. And when you consider Christ and what he has done, and when you consider what he has done for you, we should be assured of the witness that we have in our lives. Here is Christ. And what does he do? He came to save his people and if you believed on Christ you are one of his people. So that's the testimony of God's son. Let's then look secondly at the testimony of eternal life in verses 11 and 12. The testimony of eternal life, notice verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. What is it that Jesus does for us? Yes, forgives us of our sins. Yes, gives us a righteousness that is not our own but also gives us eternal life he gives us life and it is a life that is abundant and what's interesting he's going to drive to the point that jesus doesn't just give us eternal life jesus is eternal life and if you don't have jesus you don't have life at all verse 20 and we know that the son of god has come so the incarnation and has given us an understanding that we may know him we may know god through him And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. One of the clearest passages that highlights that Jesus is God. This is the true God and eternal life. If you wish to have life, if you wish to have life that lasts forever, it only comes in the son. Again, faith, as we believe on Christ, as we look to him, we receive something. We receive many things. We receive adoption. We were once orphans and now we're you know, children of God. We were once unrighteous, now we're righteous before God. We receive justification by faith, but we also receive eternal life. And the eternal life that we receive certainly is forever, but we also have eternal life now. It's a present possession that has started, but we long for its fullness when Christ comes again and that life is in his son. And we've seen throughout this book the idea of life. Jesus is the word of life. God has life in and of himself, as our confession says. What that means is, God's life is underived. God does not need anything from you and I. God does not need our worship, Acts chapter 17. He doesn't need our worship. We are held in his hands. Our natural life, the lives that we are living now, the breath that we breathe are in the hands of God. That's what Daniel says to King Belshazzar, by the way. Also, if you were following the Shane calendar, Daniel chapter five, we read that two days ago, as he highlights that Belshazzar did not glorify God. And if you are not in Christ, God is upholding you. In him we live and move and have our being. The creation of the world gives you no excuse before God most high. But you have to believe on Jesus. You need to look to him. You need to have life In him and life in the son. So God's life is underived. Our earthly life is derived. And our heavenly life is a gift that God gives to us. Isn't it a blessing we get to dwell with God forever? A God who does not need us. A God who has life in and of himself. A God who is perfect in every way. And yet was pleased to create. Creation was a gift. He was pleased to create. And even salvation is a gift. He is pleased to save that we might dwell with him forever. And who is the word of life? It is Jesus. He is life himself. And as he comes into the world, he communicates to us where eternal life lies. and It lies in him. And he goes on to say that in verse 12, he who has the son has life. Jesus says in John 10, he uh, he is the shepherd. He is the gate of his sheep for what? that they might have life and have it abundantly, that they might have abundant life, that we might dwell with God, that we might be led to those green pastures, that we might have our souls restored, that we might have goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life, that we might dwell with the house of the Lord forever. Even as John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him shall not perish but has eternal life whoever believes on him shall not perish but has eternal life and that life is in his son even revelation chapter 7 talking about those who stand i think revelation 7 is an interlude between the sixth and seventh seal i think uh it's talking about the end of the world i think between six and seven i know people have differing views on revelation but I do think the trumpets, the, to, uh, the, sorry, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are all talking about the same time period, just from different angles. But seven is the interlude. And we see this reference back to Psalm 23, I think, in verses 14 through 17. These are the ones. These are the ones who shall stand. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell with them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore, nor the sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is what awaits the people of God. And brethren, we have it in part even now. As we hear of wars and rumors of wars as we struggle with our own sins as we have issues and fights that we have with our families or friends or people in the church unfortunately when those things happen those things will be no more one day those things shall be gone and god will wipe away every tear as we are led to the fountain of living waters and that fountain of living waters is christ in whom there is eternal life if you have christ you have life and you have it abundantly if you do not have Christ, though, verse 12, he who does not have Christ, he who does not have the Son of God, does not have life. And notice their problem was Christological. The problem is sinful, but Christological. We've seen what antichrists are anybody who denies the Father and the Son, anybody who denies that Jesus came in the flesh, Christological. They denied the Trinity, they denied the hypostatic union, they denied the Incarnation. That's what these heretics were doing at this time. They had a certain view that said matter is bad, and so they didn't want Jesus to be matter or to have a body. And so it was a philosophical view that began to pervade the church, and it affected what they thought of Christ. And so the irony is they think they have life, right? We have life. We have this experience. We had this special time. That's what they thought. We have this special experience we saw into heaven. They thought they had life. They thought they had the spirit. But in reality, the irony is they do not. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. That's why believing in who the Son is, believing in what he has done, is vital and important. That's why believing the Trinity is vital and important, because it is the one God who saves sinners. And what does that one God do? He sends forth his Son to be what? A propitiation. The only begotten Son God has sent into the world, what we saw in chapter 4. What you say about Jesus and what you say about what he has done has everlasting import. And one thing that's very sad, you might be like, Mike, why are you talking about the deity of Christ? Don't we all believe that? The reality is a lot of people don't. There's our Saturday theology study, and I'm just reaping the benefits of being part of the email list, even though I didn't go yesterday. But there's Ligonier, Ligonier Ministries. Every two years, they do a state of theology survey. And they look at uh, Americans just in general, and they look at evangelicals. Want to hear a sad stat? 43% of evangelicals believe that Jesus is just a great teacher and not God. See how important Christology is? 73% say that Jesus is the first and greatest creation of God. That's Arianism, brethren. See how important Christology is? You see, the Son is uncreated. The Son is begotten. The Son is uncreated. He is the creator God, but he takes on a human nature. He takes on a human flesh. He assumes it. It is the one who who takes on another nature. The one who, the son, who is to what? The one who who has life in himself. John 5, 26. The father has granted that I have life in myself. Granted that the son has life in himself. And what does that then mean? The son gives life to others. And if you uh, you are not in Christ, you are dead and you need life. If you are in Christ, you were once dead and you are now made alive. Why? Because the one who is life itself gives you eternal life. And the one who is life itself is the one who was raised from the dead, that in him we might have life. The reality is if you do not have Christ, you have no life, but you are under the wrath of God. And John speaks in this way in John 3:36 when he says he who believes in the son has everlasting life he who does not believe in the son shall not see life but the wrath of god abides on him you're in Christ you have life if you're not in Christ the wrath of god abides on you and if you're not in Christ you don't have life what does that then mean you have death and not just physical death but eternal death a death that shall be forever Why would you die forever when you can believe on christ and have life in him turn from your sin turn to the true and living god and you shall have life in christ jesus and the comforting thing is for the christian is that we have this eternal life now that's hard for us again we walk by faith not by sight but we see everything going on in the world and we struggle do i really have this life We can struggle with assurance. Am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? Do I really have eternal life? Well, A, look to Christ. He's your foundation. And B, throughout the book, he's highlighted some tests. Not that they're the way of salvation, but tests that we have been saved. What does eternal life look like in this present age? How do we know that we have eternal life? Well, the book has unfolded what that looks like. Are you honest about your sins and confess them to God who forgives? That's 1 John 1. He who denies that he has sinned makes God doubt to be a liar, and the word is not in him. Do you love the commandments of God? Not as a way of salvation, but as a pattern for living. As you've been changed, as you've been redeemed, do you love the things of God? He who does not keep the commandments and does not love them is a liar. By the way, we're not looking for perfection here. Just some sort of evidence that it's there. Do you love the things of God which last forever or the things that are passing away? It's not wrong to have nice things in this world, but do you love the lust of the eyes? Do you love the pride of life? Are they your gods or is Christ your God? Those things shall pass away. Christ is forever. Who does the will of God shall be forever. Do you love or hate sin? I'm not saying that there aren't times where you want to sin. I'm saying in general, is there a hatred for sin? He talks about loving and hating in 1 John 3. Or do you love one another or do you hate? We also see that in 1 John 3 and 1 John 4. And loving one another comes up a lot in the book of 1 John as an assurance, as a test. We believed in the Son of God. I found in him... I love the things that he loves, and if there are some evidence, even if it's very minor and minuscule and seed form, well, one, confess your sins to Christ, and two, have some assurance. Are there evidences in the fruit of the spirit that are seen? Are, is there ob- what does the heavenly life look like? That is what it is. It is fearing God and keeping His commandments, isn't it? Honoring, worshiping God, living your life in a way that is honoring to him, fighting with sin, dealing with issues at work, you know, raising children who talk bad. That is the life that we live. That is the life we engage in. What is our heavenly life? Well, Paul unpacks that in Colossians 3. Set your mind on the things that are above. Put off the old man, put on the new. Because you've put off the old man and put on the new. And how does that manifest? Well, husbands love their wives. And wives submit to their husbands. And parents, you know, fathers do not exasperate their children and children obey their parents and people work hard, employees or employers pay their employees well, employees work hard. That is where the heavenly life is manifested as we put on love and compassion and patience and all those things becoming of the elect of God. Now again, brethren, if we fail in that, there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. you see where our heavenly life is we've been saved in christ here's our heavenly life and here's what shall be forever sin shall be no more this world shall be no more the world in all its trappings is going to pass away and that's an assurance for us but also all those other things teach us what that life looks like life in the sun we've looked to him here's how we ought to live as ones who possess eternal life now it starts now And shall be forever as we suffer as we struggle as we slog along There are going to be things that shall be no more and there are going to be things that shall be forever I love what Paul says in Romans 8 16 and 17 talking about the bearing witness aspect In relation to suffering The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and if children then heirs I don't feel like an heir I don't feel like I am entitled all the time to this heavenly inheritance that I don't deserve. Do you feel like that, brethren? But that's what the word of God says. Sometimes application is just coming back to the word of God and taking God at his word. If you're children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. We suffer just as he suffered And we shall be glorified just as he is glorified. We suffer now, but we shall be glorified with him. Gill says, which is a life of glory and happiness hereafter. In the present state is unseen, but will in the world to come be a life of vision. Free from all the sorrows and imperfections of this. And will be of the utmost perfection and pleasure and forever. We have that now and we shall have it forever. And the reason we have that now is because of Christ, and the reason we shall have that forever is because of Jesus Christ. You might struggle with assurance, but lay hold of Christ. This is what John is trying to tell you when he drives to the point of verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Receive the testimony of God. Believe on Christ. Lay hold of Christ, for in him is eternal life. Well, let us pray. Well Lord our God, we pray that you would forgive us as your people for not understanding and confessing things that we should not have in the past when it comes to our Christ. We are So often taken by things we hear but help us to take every thought captive to the obedience of christ and to always be Reformed by your word, especially when it comes to who jesus is and what he has done We are thankful for the mystery of the hypostatic union. We are thankful that there is one person two natures And we're thankful that he is like us in every way body and soul and yet he did not sin We know that we need him. We know that we needed him. We know that he we needed one to speak to us because we are ignorant we need one to die for us because we are guilty we need one to rule us because we are weak and we're thankful that we have that in christ who is our prophet and our priest and our king and we are thankful for the testimony concerning jesus and what he has done and we're thankful for what that means for your people what that means for us as a witness, as we are trophies of grace, what that means for us now when it comes to our life and the eternal life that we have and the abundant life that we have in Christ. Sometimes we can look around in our lives and be discouraged. Sometimes we can look around at the world around us and be downtrodden. But help us to come back to your word and be reminded that we have a life and have it abundantly in the Savior. May we always look to Christ, may we always look to him, may we walk by your spirit as we live by the spirit, may we walk by the spirit, may we exhibit fruit of the spirit, may we love the things of God and may we do so knowing that we are not contributing anything to our salvation but knowing that we have been saved and changed and we're thankful that you work for us, Christ worked for us by giving us, uh, by imputing his righteousness to us. And we're thankful that you work in us when you sanctify us. So cause us to die to sin more day by day. Cause us to grow into the image of Christ. Cause us to fear you and keep your commandments. Help us to be aware of certain things that we are unaware of. Help us to grow each and every day in the things of you. We have much to grow in. We have much to learn. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. May we do so always living by faith, looking to Christ, looking to the testimony and being reminded of what Christ has done. what that means for us. Please save anyone here today who who does not know you. Please work in their hearts and lives. Please give them a new heart. Please work by your spirit. Give them the gift of faith. Please make them willing in the day of your power. May they look to Christ by faith and find eternal life in him. Thank you for all you do. May you be honored and glorified in all that we do. In the name of Christ, amen.